On this edition of the Iowa Business Report, It requires us to not only teach the content and give them practice in the skills, but it requires us to give them real life practice. Engaging students regarding possible careers at an earlier age is the goal of a unique program at one Iowa school. We'll share the encouraging results. This week's business news includes a renewed push for childcare to help workers and the first signs of economic weakness due to COVID-19. And in our profile segment, we'll tell you about a business that helps CEOs get unstuck. This is the Iowa Business Report for the first weekend of March 2020. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry has been the voice of Iowa business since 1903. Learn more online at iowaabi.org. Here is Jeff Stein. As part of ongoing efforts to more appropriately prepare the next generation for careers, the Waterloo Community School District engaged in a unique project, a dedicated career center. The program has steadily grown in its first four years, as Waterloo School Superintendent Dr. Jane Lindemann told me earlier this week. We had a group of about 50 uh, community members, students, staff, um, parents who came together. We talked about high school reform. We went on uh, planes and went all around the, the United States looking at different high school models where they were in, in communities that were very similar to Waterloo, but where they were getting much better results, better results on achievement, better results on graduation rate, better re- results on engagement. And so it wasn't too far into those studies that we really honed in on the concept of career and technical education. Uh, We were on the East Coast in Wilmington, Delaware, where they have invested heavily in career and technical education high schools. And so really following that model, uh, we decided to try to bring that back to Waterloo, where we could get students started on career development at a much er earlier age instead of waiting till they went to anything after high school. What's unique about the Waterloo District that made it especially important to take advantage of what others have done and try to mm-hmm. make it work here. There's actually multiple pieces that make it different, but the number one thing that I would mention is our graduation rate. Um, for years, we had had a historically low, too low uh, graduation rate. And, and for any listeners, graduation rate is really defined as the number of students who graduate from four years from the time they enter high school to the time they leave. That's just the state's definition of, so whenever a child walks in and takes their first ninth grade class, they get tagged to a cohort and then uh, they, they would graduate, you know, the class of 2023 or the class of 2024. And so they're really tracking those students to see how many of them graduate in four years. So we were really historically low in that. Um, I believe when I became the superintendent that year, we had 70.44% of our students graduate in four years. We just, we really attacked that. We knew that we needed some way to give relevance to the learning. We were just, you know, too many students were becoming disengaged, just and really to disengage to the point of, of dropping out. And so um, we needed a way to, um, instill hope, to give them vision, to give them, you know, a bright future and to get them started earlier on. And so that was really the impetus for bringing this type of a program to Waterloo. That was the number one, although there were other factors too, but really we needed something to really attack that engagement issue and relevance in learning. 
Is this program unique within the state of Iowa or even the Midwest, mm-hmm. to your knowledge? In the state of Iowa, we are actually just one of two. Um, Des Moines Public Schools has a career center concept, which is very similar to ours. So they have 42 areas that the students can study. Um, we, in in February of 2016, we had tried to pass a bond where we would build a building for students to study uh, the careers. And we were actually looking at 30 pathways at that point in time when that did not pass. That was not a successful bond. And so we decided to go ahead and just start bringing those pathways as we could afford them. So we started slow and steady with two that fall. The next year we added three more, so bringing us to five. So by the fall of this year, we will actually be at 18 programs. So it's not the 30 different pathway areas that we were originally looking at, but it is 18 and 18 very unique programs that other districts don't have. And they certainly uh, don't necessarily have them right on their school campus. From the very beginning, I would tell you that the one thing we heard, it wasn't that people didn't support the concept. I would say overwhelmingly people loved the concept. We kept hearing that as we were, I think that that year that we were we we're trying to pass the bond, I think I did thir- between 30 and 40 community meetings. Overwhelmingly people supported the mission and the concept. What they didn't support was the price tag, and so which is understandable. I mean, because it was going to be funded through um, property tax, and so uh, there was a you know there that was the really the concern. And so how we've been able to do that is just really slowing down the process. When we tried to pass the bond, we were going to the district had six million dollars at that time to commit to that building, and so we just started tapping into that six million dollars slow and steady. Um, the first year we brought two programs at the cost of about a million dollars, and so we started just to start the remodel. And then since that time, we've really done a, a revamp and it's taken us multiple years now, you know, it's 2020. And so we're getting to 18 programs um, when we started really that that spring of, of 2016. So it's taken us a while to get here, but we've just funded them as we could. The, the, the major source is the save dollars, the one cent money that we're using just as it comes in. We just, you know, okay, now we can add two more, we can add three more programs this year. And so that's really how we funded it. Talk about, if you will, the partnership with businesses in the community. Because, again, when we say career center, we are not talking about traditional four-year liberal arts education. We're talking about something very different. So how has that, I'll say, even required you Mm -hmm. to work with the local community? You could do it in a vacuum, but it it is not as efficient as opposed to having these partnerships that you keep adding to all the time. Yeah, I really appreciate that question probably more than anything because it this this is really a different way of educating students. And so it requires us to not only teach the content and give them practice in the skills, but it requires us to give them real life practice. And that requires us to be able to go out into businesses and let the students see what it looks like, let them practice it, let them try that. So um, our businesses came on in the very, very beginning, um, kind of in in a big way. Um, Once we signed our very first official partner, which was John Deere, once we we signed them as an official sponsor, they've really been lining up, to be honest. And that, that, um, I'm not overemphasizing that or, or over exaggerating in any way. We've, to date, we've signed 21 official sponsors and we have approximately 18 more waiting to be signed. And so when they become an official sponsor, we really describe it as a mutual benefit. We want, we we need the expertise of the business owners, the business workers. We need them to help us make sure we get our content right. Sometimes they have old equipment that they'll donate to us. Sometimes they'll come and be guest speakers. Sometimes they'll provide a job shadow. So our students get access to them. But what they get out of it is not only a way to um, create a, a better 
pipeline of workers, but they get to give back to their profession. Um, they get access to our students. We've had multiple businesses that have hired our students. Um, we have one student right now who's doing an apprenticeship at Powers Engineering. Um, and so he goes uh, he goes every single day right after he comes in the morning for classes. And, and then he goes there and he actually works. And, and I think that that... Um, that experience is really good because they get great workers and get to train them up in a way that makes sense for somebody they might hire later. But our kids get a great benefit out of that too. So the businesses have come to the table with amazing support. And sometimes it's actually a cash support. So we've had many businesses that have given um, not only equipment, but they've actually given, given dollars to support the work. Among the many reasons for developing this plan and putting it into action was a lower than average graduation rate. Mm-hmm. Can you see an yeah. improvement in graduation rates even already? Absolutely. Our graduation rate last year was at an all-time high. Um, we we were at 84, a little over 84%. And so in the, earlier in the show, I said it was at 70% just six years ago. We are steadily in the 80s, very consistently in the 80%. Um, you know, sometimes it's 85, 84. And I, I really believe strongly that we're going to be exceeding that as we go through the next three to five years. We're going to see numbers. The state graduation rate is 91%. So to have us be, you know, nearing in on 85, we're not nearly as discrepant as we were. We are still a little bit um, lower than we want to be, but nearly not as discrepant. And the other thing that I think is really great is that there's an achievement a gap that happens by race. And so this has really, this is one of the pieces of the puzzle. It's not the only thing we've done, but it's one of the pieces of the puzzle that has really closed the achievement gap, especially for graduation rates. So our our black students have a graduation rate that is very similar to our white students. And that's really important because when we talk about being good for all, we mean good for all. Dr. Jane Lindemann is superintendent of the Waterloo Community School District. More can be found on Facebook at Waterloo Career Center. Dr. Lindemann says in the fall of 2016, 37 students were enrolled at the center. Just three years later, last fall, that number was nearly 10 times that amount, 330. And nearly double that amount, more than 600, are enrolled this semester with students from five different area districts paying outside tuition in order to attend classes there. And earlier this week, a five-student team from the Waterloo Career Center won the annual Iowa Pro Start Invitational Culinary Competition, sponsored by the Iowa Restaurant Association Education Foundation in Des Moines. Still to come, addressing workforce child care needs and helping a company's executives do their jobs better. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Concern about the global spread of the novel coronavirus COVID-19 may now be affecting the economy in Iowa and eight other Midwest and Plains states. The latest Mid-American Business Conditions Index, released on March 1st, showed a drop from 57.2 in January all the way down to 52.8 in February. 
Dr. Ernie Goss of Creighton University oversees the survey. He notes that while the index is still in growth-positive territory, the softer numbers should be of concern to policymakers. Some Iowa business leaders were in the nation's capital a week ago as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation released new data about the effects of a lack of quality child care on the workforce. Their study shows Iowa's economy alone misses an estimated $935 million each year. That includes $153 million in lost tax revenue and a loss to the state's employers of $781 million due to absences and employee turnover as a result of child care breakdowns. More than half of parents in Iowa reported missing work due to child care issues in the previous three months alone. Nearly 70% of Iowa's parents rely on family members for at least some child care. And a quarter of enrolled parents in our state postponed school or a training program due to child care issues. More information on the survey is online at uschamberfoundation.org. Up next, help on how best to run a business. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, helping develop the next generation of business leaders through Leadership Iowa, Business Horizons, and Leadership Iowa University. To learn more, go to iowaabi.org. In this week's profile segment, we talk with Mike Kleiss of Renaissance Executive Forums of Iowa. He's based in Pella. I'm really a generalist. And so when when I am at my best and most helpful for people, it's recognizing that uh, there are times when uh, a CEO, business owner feels stuck or feels stuck and alone. That's the double whammy there. And so if either one of those things are in place, I'm alone or I'm stuck, that's typically where I'm able to help them. I can get them unstuck. Oftentimes that means I, I can give some general guidance, provide some framework or something that might help them along the way or get them connected to a resource that really hits the spot for them. But when they're alone, oftentimes that's where it comes down to, I, I'm a part-time therapist in some ways. I, I listen. And sometimes somebody else just has to sit with somebody else and listen to them, hear what's going on, help them process a little bit. And so that idea of no CEO should be alone or the worst case, alone and stuck. And so that's really where I come in as a, as a generalist and I just help facilitate them getting unstuck and getting connected. I don't mean to simplify it, but is it to some degree a matter of a person from the outside who has seen a lot of different organizations, seen how people work with each other and with the marketplace. Someone from the outside coming in, being able to have the aha moment that those who are working in it every day are too close to and can't, in essence, see the forest for the trees? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a real reality for it. And there's a, there's a second part of that. So yeah, as our focus is narrowed and we're in it, we have a hard time seeing the whole picture sometimes. And so there's that. Gosh, there's there's a, a second part of this, Jeff, where um, as people are inside it, they're pretty passionate and emotional even. 
And so there is an opportunity for somebody from the outside to be much more dispassionate about something and, and help them see or distill what's going on. I'd spent about 21 years at Pella Corporation, Pella Windows and Doors. And uh, the last role I was in, I got to work with our independent distribution, which was a collection of about 50 independent, small, mid-sized businesses. I just loved working with them, enjoyed it, and found I had more of a, a passion for that size business than working inside a great big business. And so when I had the opportunity, I wanted to make the move and I, I found an opportunity to make the move. And so I just went independent and said, I'm just gonna start doing coaching and consulting with small and mid-sized businesses. That's the part that, that intrigues me. And, and I'll tell you, as I talk to so many people, whether it's Vermeer or whether it's a small business owner, they're very different, but there's a spark or something that leads people to have the confidence to say, this is what my passion is. This is what I want to do. Where did that come in for you? At what point did you have the realization that this is what was going to make you professionally and personally happy? Uh, it, it probably was the, the last four years of doing this under the umbrella of Pella Corporation, which was a great umbrella to be underneath, right? And so I, I was underneath that umbrella and just found myself drawn to, I want to be in the field. I want to be working with these size businesses. And as my team grew and, and my role grew, I was getting to do less of that and found myself missing that, missing that. And that was kind of the thing like, well, I enjoyed it. Now I'm not getting enough of it. I got to go do this. And so then it was really a, a question of when and trying to decide when I, I stewed about it for a long time. I probably could have picked a better time. I did it in 2009. Well, wasn't a booming economy at that point, but Nonetheless, it felt like it was the time for me to do it. And I, I don't know if I can pinpoint anything other than just say it was that gut feel just says, I got to go try now. Sometimes we come to the realization that bigger isn't better or just higher up isn't better. And, and fortunately, I get to spend time with a lot of uh, business owners and CEOs that have recognized that and really are, are spending their time kind of making things the way it works best for them and the way that they can enjoy it most. And so I have a lot of admiration because there is the temptation to go bigger or that's got to be better, right? And I'll tell you, a lot of people have recognized it's not necessarily for them. It is for some folks. There's pride of authorship. There's territory. There is the sense of being threatened if someone doesn't like your creation. I suppose all of those things become noise that you have to cut through in order to actually get the process to be functioning as efficiently as it can. Yeah. The, and there is a, there is a challenge that sometimes when we're in the middle of our challenge that we're working on, we, we do believe we're the only ones facing this unique scenario. And in a lot of ways, it is truly unique to, to that person because of the individuals and things, but there are lots of parallels and sometimes just helping somebody see uh, another parallel or another scenario that, that might be analogous to what they're going through can open up the possibilities that says, yeah, what I created isn't necessarily ugly, but, but, but it could be more beautiful, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? How can you measure success in what you do? There's a part of this that can be quantified, 
but it seems like there's an awful lot of it that is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's intangible. The client has to feel like it helped them get somewhere. So how do you measure success yourself? Well, one example would be uh, when we went in, in a CEO peer group, when I'm facilitating a group of CEOs together, uh, there is a feedback right at the end of the session. It, it is a, it, it's a go around the room quickly. What was your best takeaway? And if I get some flat takeaways, like, uh, you know, it was good to see everybody. Okay. That maybe that's okay. But if it was, oh, when we talked about my challenge, I got four things. I am ready. I am dialed in. Uh, those you can monitor the feedback, but they also give me a rating at the end of a session too, or how did the session go? And, and we get a one through 10. So we get a chance to get some quantitative mm-hmm. <laughs> assessment of as well of, of did it work or not. I think somebody would rather hear it from a peer than hear it from me <laughs> it, it, because it resonates more. Um, there's a direct experience there that I can relate. It, it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword. There are times where I may be engaged or a group is engaged in one person's challenge that we're working on and they get done with it. And that person who got some insights and some expertise that was lent to them, uh, they feel really good. But somebody else in the room might be sitting there going, you know, I was feeling kind of sassy here listening to Joe talk about this uh, and Sarah talk about this. But now I'm sitting there going, I wonder if I need to go back and check on this, right? And so there's learning even in other people. So it's very much a two-way thing that becomes really powerful. Best thing about what you are doing professionally right now is what? The best thing is uh, I get to find out about so many interesting businesses and stories of how people got into their chair. It is fascinating and uh, just I can't wait for the next meeting to sit down with somebody and say, oh, so tell me how you got in this chair. And it's just fascinating, the stories. Love it. Mike Kleiss, president and owner of Renaissance Executive Forums. More information about their services can be found online at executiveforums.com. We connected recently via Zoom. He was in his office in Pella. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. Next week, information on an annual summit focused on world development in Iowa. That and more next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, sponsors of the Taking Care of Business Conference in Cedar Rapids in June. Follow ABI on Twitter at IowaABI and online at iowaabi.org.